Good morning, Cross Point. Welcome back. It is so good to hear you singing together. We're going to pray together and we're going to thank the Lord and we're going to hear from him in his word. And we're going to have just one more Sunday outdoors. Next Sunday is the last Sunday outdoors. Make no mistake, the restrictions fall away on the 15th. We're back inside on the 20th. And every week I hear from people who only watch us online. Thank you. We're going to continue broadcasting. Of course, it would be far better for you if you're far from here, if you have a local congregation uh, that you, where people you can actually be face-to-face with and sit in circles with. But we will be here for as long as the Lord allows us to be so, both online and in person. Uh, it would not be... It would not be unusual if some of you, especially your children, felt some unease getting back to what we used to call normal life. Let me encourage you to return to normalcy in every area of your life, especially the life of your children, just as soon as you possibly can. Uh, Anxiety is through the roof. Alcohol addiction is through the roof. Substance abuse is through the roof. Many, many people across the world, not only in the United States, have coped with all of this suffering, all of this solitude in some really unhealthy ways. We've never been afraid. Not for a moment have we been afraid uh, through all of this. We've put our trust as a congregation in the Lord. He's been very, very faithful. You've been amazingly patient. You've shown the character and the wisdom of Jesus as we've gone through this together. Let's get back to normal as quickly as possible. Let's do all of the things we used to do. Please don't use the pandemic going forward as a reason or an excuse to reshape your life in a way that God never intended life to be lived. Very concerned about that, that some people will extend. I'm not talking about any individual. It's just a sense that I get from conversations and questions people ask me. I'm very concerned, especially for younger people, whose life is frankly because of their youth has been dominated by the pandemic. Some very young kids, their only conscious memory of life, the way the pandemic forced it to be. Be calm, be peaceful, lead the way in your family, lead the way wherever you have influence, teach them to trust the Lord and keep moving forward so that eventually this will be a distant memory We'll be able to look back and certainly regret some choices perhaps that we made, certainly regret all the losses we suffered, but we'll be able to look back if we stay in step with Jesus. We'll be able to look back at all this and see how this was all used by God to shape us more carefully, more precisely into the image of his son, which you probably know is the point of you still being here. God could glorify you in a moment. He could take you to heaven and perfect you in a moment. The reason you're still here is to grow in the likeness of his son. So let's set aside anger. Let's set aside fear. Let's set aside impatience. You've been extraordinary in all of these areas. Let's get together this afternoon at 4.30 and eat burgers together as if that were the only thing that mattered in the whole wide world. And I'm told there's salads, and I'm told there's chicken as well, okay? You don't have to have a burger. Don't let TK Burger's name fool you. There's food for whatever your diet is. But let's get together, and let's get back together, and let's, I'm telling you all of this, probably you're, if you're here in person, you're the last person who needs to hear it. I'm asking you, I'm commissioning you, I'm pleading with you, get the stragglers back. 
Look around your circle and ask yourself who's missing, who used to be here, who might be depressed, who might be angry, who might be anxious, and draw them back with your friendship so that you can introduce them and remind them of the greatest friend they have, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and we'll look at his word. Jesus, thank you for the privilege I have to walk along with you, follow you with people like this. People all across the country, Lord, have banded together and supported and encouraged us as a congregation. Some have stayed faithful, stayed encouraging from out of state. Bless them. Encourage them. Encourage us and help us, Lord, hear your word very clearly this morning. Give me the grace to make it as clear as it should be so that we will go home with absolute confidence in what you are presently doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week I told you Dr. Ken Connolly, that great theologian, preacher, that Scottish Calvinist called me when I was a Bible college student and asked, oh, I wish I could do the brogue. It would be so much better if you heard it in his accent. It just sounded smarter. Those of you who knew Dr. Connolly know what I'm talking about. I know, I'm sorry, just standard, standard American English up here from a kid who grew up in Mexico and was raised by Texans, so who knows what this accent is, <laughs> so bear with me. He called and said, Bruce, where is Jesus and what is he doing right now? And I've considered the question ever since he asked it. And as I look across the Bible, I find actually that Jesus is doing a lot of things, and he's doing them right now. I'm going to take two Sundays, this Sunday and next actually, to explain to you not everything, but some of the important things that Jesus is doing right now, because Jesus is alive and Jesus is working. And if you put your faith in Jesus, what you're doing is actually putting your faith in a living person. You're not putting your faith in a historical fact. Though the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are historical facts, and you can know facts and believe facts, you can't really truly and personally trust history. You can't trust events. You can only put your personal trust in having a living relationship with a person who is actually alive, and Jesus very much is. And the answer to Dr. Connolly's question, of course, is found in the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is the very foundation of our faith and the only reason we're not wasting our time this morning. If you haven't read it in a while, I would encourage you after church to read 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of the longer chapters in the New Testament. It is absolutely and literally foundational to the faith because Paul says... If Christ is not risen from the dead, you're still in our sins. We're a pack of liars and we'll all, we're all wasting our lives. Paul says if Jesus was killed by Romans on a cross, jeered to death and in death by a mob gathered from around the world to mock him in his final hours on earth, if they took his body off the cross, laid it in a buried tomb, and if that was the end of him, if the corpse of Jesus decayed as every human corpse always has and ever will, if that was the end of Jesus, 
If the Roman guard posted outside his tomb to make sure that according to their understanding, the body was not stolen, went home, a job well done, those soldiers wondering what in the world that was all about because it was pointless. If Jesus is still, what is left of him is still in a tomb somewhere in Israel, this is the biggest waste of time in human history. You've been singing songs about someone who died who cannot possibly hear you, care about you, or answer you. I've certainly wasted my life because I've given most of it to telling people about him. Someone who cannot help because de the dead help no one. The dead help people only in life. And the answer to what Jesus is presently doing is answered in his resurrection. It all begins with his resurrection. And the first surprising and beautiful and comforting thing, if you'll take this in, you'll go through what remains of this pandemic and all of its upheaval. If you'll take this to heart, you'll go through this differently. You'll go through it more peacefully. The first thing the Bible tells me that the resurrected, actually alive Jesus is doing is this. He's ruling right now. Jesus is in charge right now. In Matthew 28, verse 17, Jesus said this, after his resurrection, if you'll look there in the scripture, it says in Matthew 28, 17 and 18, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's natural. Jesus has summoned them to gather with him what follows is what Bible students call the Great Commission. But when these disciples, after days of seeing Christ, see him once more, the Bible says, very honestly, when they saw him, when they saw him there, they worshiped, but some did what? They doubted. Because these are first century people. They're not stupid people. A common objection to the resurrection of Jesus is that people who lived 2,000 years ago were just easily duped. They're gullible, dumb, ignorant people. May I suggest to you that human beings have always understood death and probably people who lived in the first century understood it a little better than we do. They live so much more closely to it. Understandably, when they saw Jesus there, they worshiped him as one might, one who is proving with resurrected authority that everything he ever told them about being the son of God is actually true. They worshiped him, but some doubted. I don't know. I can't prove it, but I would imagine that it is Matthew telling you about his own experience. Even as Matthew worshiped, he must have asked himself, if he's the one telling you that there were doubts in some hearts, they perhaps were in his own as he worshiped Jesus, he must have thought to himself, is this really happening? Have you ever been through an experience so strange that you wonder if it's actually real? Two or three times, I've been in situations so weird. I won't tell you about them, but that'd be a whole other thing. I could write a book, actually. Of situations so unusual, so beyond the norm of hum human experience that I actually went into what I recognize as the beginning stages of shock, wondering if this was really happening or if I perhaps were still in my bed asleep and dreaming all this. That's a very natural reaction to the risen Christ, worship mingled with doubt. But Jesus said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
The resurrection of Jesus proves, validates, confirms, seals, completes his work as the Son of God, the God who became a man on earth, and now he enjoys all authority everywhere. Peter understood this. A few dozen days later, on Pentecost, Peter preached and said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is speaking to the same crowd that was a participant and a spectator to the death of Jesus. And he's announcing, them, he's announcing to them in real time, in their lifetime, that the death they witnessed just weeks earlier was not the end of Jesus. That same Jesus, that Yeshua, that boy born in Bethlehem in mysterious circumstances, raised in the no account town of Nazareth, whose father was a carpenter and a mason, that same Jesus... The one some of, some of you loved and the one some of you hated, God raised him up and we are witnesses of it. A few verses later in Acts 2.36, Peter says this, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now take that in. If you were among those who consented to the death of Jesus, take that sentence in. Imagine yourself in the crowd. You have believed the Pharisees. You have come to believe that Jesus is a blasphemous hoax. You've heard rabbis and important men and experts in the law of Moses week after week in the synagogue denounce Jesus. Open up the Hebrew scriptures and explain from there that it must all be an act. It could possibly be demonic. In fact, that was the official verdict that was handed down from Jerusalem. He casts out demons because he is a demon. Imagine yourself in that mindset, which would be an easy mindset to adopt. Because it's just one man making scandalous claims and primarily a group of 12 followers of no particular importance, the most common profession, commercial fishermen, one a former tax collector, another a political, and a political zealot dedicated to casting out Rome. In other words, if ever there was a motley crew, it was the apostles. So you're, you've sided with the majority. You may not have rejoiced at the death of Jesus, but you've at least been glad that the controversy is over and that your nation will now be at peace. Now, after an extraordinary miracle of preaching the gospel of Jesus in, nation, in languages that these Jewish apostles could not possibly have learned, much less studied even in their lifetime, Peter explains the miracle by saying this, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Is that preaching clear enough for you? You killed him. God has made him Lord and Christ. Christ means he's the Messiah. That's a Greek word, same word in the Greek New Testament. It's Christ in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. It's Messiah, same thing, just two different languages. It means the one God has anointed, the one God has chosen, the one God has set aside and sent to do his will, the one that Isaiah spoke of, the one that Daniel spoke of, the one that David wrote of in Psalm 22 predicting his crucifixion. 500 years from 1,000 1, BC in the life of Jesus 
uh, in the life of David, rather roughly to four or 500 years before his birth, all of your prophets, all of your scriptures pointed to him. That's what Peter means when he calls him Christ. And God has also made him what? Lord in Christ. Lord means he's sovereign. He's in charge of everything. He has rivals, but there's no contest. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's not exactly sensitive preaching. You killed the one God sent, and guess what? Now the Father has put him in charge. Jesus is ruling right now. Listen to Paul explain it in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the chapter regarding the resurrection of Jesus I just told you about. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Death. What's driven so much of the fear The anger, the hysteria, the reaction, and the overreaction in the middle of this pandemic is the specter of death. Some have chosen to react to the reality of death coming closer than we imagined by taking extraordinary, extreme safety measures, locking themselves in never to leave. Others have chosen another common reaction to the arrival or the proximity of death, which is denial. It may happen to others. It will not happen to me. They've done the math and lived with a great deal of confidence. The truth is the enemy that stalks every one of us and that will eventually come for all of us unless Jesus, who is life, returns and saves us first, is death. That's what you have to reckon with. That's why hardly anybody is super pleased when they hit big milestone birthdays. (laughs) When I turned 40, somebody said, are you tired of running uphill? I have good news. It took me a second, but I got it. Why the black balloons at the 40th birthday party? Why all the dark humor? Because we are coping with an enemy we cannot defeat ourselves. We are coping with the reality of death. We work toward retirement. We have savings. We try to mend our family relationships. We go to the doctor. We worry about symptoms. All for one reason. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But look what it says about Jesus. He must reign. I believe this is a reference to the millennium of Jesus. But I don't have time to go into that now. We'll just take Paul's simple statement as it stands. Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is in charge of everything. And immediately the question will come, does it seem like his rule is not going so well? If Jesus is ruling, would you like to speak to the manager? Have you ever wanted to be God for a minute? Let me put it to you in another terms. Have you wanted unlimited authority for a minute? Haven't you thought that the world would be a whole lot better if you could have your way for about 60 seconds with certain people in certain situations? If Jesus is ruling, 
if Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, if the mob killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ, if Christ must reign until every enemy is destroyed and the last enemy is destroyed, which is death, why are we in the mess that we're in? Why doesn't he step in and do something? For the second time this morning, in the brief hours I've been up, I've seen the police dealing with difficult situations. I've seen the police dealing with what had to be a fatal accident. I even got yelled at a little bit, being a little too close to the police line as I passed by. I understood that. They had better plans for their morning and they had to see death up close. I understand. Why cancer? Why a pandemic? Why cruelty? Why evil? Why doesn't he just, if he's actually in charge, why doesn't he do something? Whether it's evil on a global scale, the kind that makes the news, makes you stay away from the news, lest it heighten your anxiety and deepen your depression, or just the everyday difficulties of dealing with family members and friends and unreasonable bosses and teachers. Bullies on the playground. Why is life so hard if Jesus is actually in charge of it? It's a question you need to grapple with. And there's a very simple and biblical answer. The same Peter who preached at Pentecost and told the crowd who days earlier had consented to the death of Jesus and helped put him to death and said, I have good news. It's actually good news. You should be embarrassed and you should repent. And they did, by the way, if you know the story. They were cut to the heart, the book of Acts reports, and they said, what shall we do? And Peter gave them the answer, be saved. You killed him, but he died for your sins. Trust him now, and he will be quick to forgive you. He will be quick to wash away your sins and give you every promise from God. That same Peter, facing his own martyrdom, because Jesus told Peter, just before Jesus ascended to the Father, that the next time Peter was in the crucible, Peter, who had denied Jesus, would be faithful to him. And he told him, Peter, the next time they come for you, they will actually stretch you out and lay you on a cross. You can read about it in the last chapter of John's gospel. Peter was restored to gospel ministry. Jesus extended grace to him, probed Peter's love for him, and said, Peter, do this feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my people. If you love me, tell them the truth about me for the rest of your life, which will come because the next time you won't be a coward, the next time you won't run, the next time you will actually die for me. And in his last letter, Peter, knowing all this, knowing that his own death is just ahead, that there will be actual real persecution, and this time he will not escape. He answers the question in his last letter in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter answers the skeptics who say, where is the Lord's coming? You're always telling us that Jesus is going to return, but the things are today the way they've ever and always been. Nothing has changed. He's not really coming. He's not alive. He's not in charge. It's all made up. 
Here's Peter's answer. If you have it in your notes, I'd love you to read it with me. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Would you read that with me, please? Peter explains. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not delayed, and the Lord will not be denied. He has promised to return and to make everything right. Some people count his absence as slowness, but it's not slowness. Peter says what's really going on is the living and ruling Jesus is being patient toward you. He's patient toward you because he does not wish that any should perish. What he wants instead is that all should reach repentance. This is why he told us in Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's no doubt and there's no delay. The only thing Jesus is waiting for is for more people to be saved. He has unquestioned authority. Those who actually know his authority, those who are in glory with him, know the full extent of his reign. We do not. We sometimes doubt it. Here's how I know. You put yourself in charge over Jesus all the time. Don't you? I've said it before, but here's the dumbest bumper sticker in the history of bumper stickers. God is my co-pilot. The almighty God of the universe is willing to go on the journey with you and you insist on driving? That's dumb. Why is that so popular? Because that's such a great and common way people look at life. God, you ride shotgun. I'll, you pass me the cold drinks. I know the way. If I feel like I'm lost and I need a little reassurance, I'll ask you for directions, but I'll be in charge. Please understand, Jesus is alive to rule. The extent of his authority, the reality of his reign is total. He is not exercising all the authority that he could and the authority that he someday will because if he were to exercise all of his authority at this moment at that very moment if Jesus five minutes from now said in a great show of humor I'm going to time my return and my actual total rule with the Sunday that Jesus spoke of my second coming if we were Gifted, if we were blessed to have that coincidence that we spoke of the Lord's return and it actually happened five minutes from now, at that moment, everyone would be accountable to him. There would be no second chances. All would answer to Jesus. Everyone will answer to Jesus, but there are countless thousands this morning, doubtless, that are running their own lives that in the next few days will turn to Christ. As many of you did. Do you remember what it was like when you didn't know Jesus? Do you remember what you were like? Do you remember the light coming on? Do you remember your heart and your mind turning away from sin, turning away from yourself, and asking him to save you and give you mercy? Do you remember that transformation? 
According to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that's what Jesus desires for everyone. Because the moment he decides to exercise his full sovereign authority, no more chances. This really shouldn't su surprise us. Wise, powerful human beings act like this every, every day. The parent, the school principal, the police officer, they know what kind of authority they have. They know what they could do in wisdom, often by love and patience. They restrain and they do less than they could because they desire the ultimate good of the person they're dealing with. The Lord knows best. He knows the time of his return. He grants you life. He grants you opportunities. He extends you health. He gives you money. He invites you into his local church. He bids you to live in his kingdom for kingdom purposes and to stop putting material things ahead of him and ahead of his purposes only because he's patient. He's already in charge. He will begin acting like he is completely in charge when he chooses to do so. There's no doubt. There's no delay. Jesus only waits for more people to be saved. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, your little sphere of influence, wherever you have people who do not know Christ, his return is apparently delayed. It's not delayed at all. He is only waiting in patience so that they could be saved. Here's the second thing Jesus is doing that I'll explain to you this morning. Jesus is ruling, and on a very personal level, Jesus is giving you life. That's what Jesus is doing. The one who took his life back from the dead as promised is giving you life. Colossians chapter 3, please. Should be on your notes, but if you're watching online and you don't have all the scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you're a Christian, hear this as for yourself. Okay? And it's all tied back to the resurrection. Watch. If then you have been raised with Christ, Christian, have you been? Were you given eternal life? You were given eternal life by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's an example of his authority right there. He's enthroned. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Is that verse hard or easy to obey? Do you know what kind of fear? Do you know what kind of anger? Do you know what kind of hysteria has gripped many American Christians since the pandemic began? Left and right, it's pushed us in every direction. It's made all of us, including me, act in ways that we didn't know we were capable of. Why is that? Because the tyranny of things happening on earth is so loud, so urgent. Paul's instructions, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're dead to sin. Your old life buried with Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. That's what he means. Verse 4, very important. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. 
when the Lord who is life, when the Lord who gives life, when the Lord who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. I want you to focus on the first phrase in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. It says, when Christ who, what? Is your life. It's not only that Jesus gives life. He does. The Bible says that. But it's better than that. It's not only that he gives life as if life were a commodity that he could push across the table for you to enjoy like money, like water, like food. No, Paul says something deeper, something to me more beautiful here. Christ is your life. It's not only that you've been forgiven of your sins so that you can now go on and live any way you please. No. You've been raised with Christ. His resurrection was not for his sake alone. His resurrection was for your sake. He's the eternal son of God. That's what we've been looking at for the last two weeks. He is life. He created life. He made everything that exists. Why subject himself to human flesh? Why endure human frailties and especially human temptations? Why face every temptation that human beings can be felled by and conquer it? That's all for your sake. He had no need of that. A few weeks ago, we studied the attributes of God and we learned that God is independent, meaning unlike you, he has need of no one. You and I need people. One of the devastating things about the pandemic is how it isolated people from their normal circles. To me, the most hateful thing about the pandemic is that some people died alone. It's inhumane. It's brutal. We're not made for that. God is. God is life. He is eternal. He always existed. At a time of his own choosing, he started making human beings, not because he had need of us, but because he wanted us to enjoy him, and he wanted, us to, he wanted to enjoy us, and he wanted especially us to enjoy him in return. He is life. Why did he do all this? He did all this to give you the greatest gift of all, to give you the gift of himself. So when you come to Jesus, you're not just given life as if it were something that could be put in your bag and walked away with. No, you receive Christ himself. You take Jesus as life. Listen to Jesus explain it. John 15 verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. That word picture doesn't make sense in 21st century people. Jesus says, I have life in me. You're extensions of that life. We're surrounded by trees. I won't miss much about being outdoors. I will miss the trees. You cut a branch off any one of these trees and drop it in the parking lot, it'll be dead in a few hours. Every branch severed from the root, every branch severed from the tree will die. That's Jesus' point. He's likely walking through vineyards as he says this. So he takes from his day and from his time something very familiar to the disciples and says, listen, here's the relationship we have. I'm the vine, you're the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You believe that? I often don't. At least my actions show that I don't actually believe that because my apparent practical belief way too often seems to be without Jesus, I can at least get started. And we're back to God as my co-pilot nonsense. I'll get started and I'll call him in when it gets hard. Or I'll make plans and I'll ask for his blessing right before I get started doing them. You ever do that? Lord, I've decided, please bless me. If I may, just for a moment, you'd be surprised what people ask me, a Christian pastor, to bless. And they have the lack of awareness sometimes to tell me directly what sinful, wicked thing they've decided and literally ask for me to pray about it. No. Pray that you stop. I'm not making this up, and I'm not talking about anybody who's presently here. I'm reflecting on many things that have happened over many years in several different places, including wicked, shameful sin. This is what I've decided. Would you please pray for that? That's a symptom, an advanced symptom of my own foolishness to think that Jesus isn't serious when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Why is that? Because he's not just empowering you. The Son of God actually is your life. That has endless and practical applications. Years ago, I complained to a mentor in seminary that I was sleep-deprived, always stressed, starting to get TMJ from gripping my teeth together all the time because I felt so under pressure. He listened to all of that childish complaining and said, Bruce... You have everything that Jesus, you have time to do everything Jesus wants you to do. You just don't have any time to waste. I didn't want to have coffee with him much after that. (laughs) That's true. If Jesus wants me to do it, Jesus, who's not a bad time manager, who's actually in charge of everything, he will certainly allot me the ability and the time to do the things he actually wants me to do. If I'm stressed, falling behind, and failing, that can only mean I've wasted time he's given or I'm involved in things that he's not concerned about. What did Paul say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The fact that Jesus is alive and in relationship with you and is not only alive but is actually giving you life makes all the difference. If you'll start your morning and carry it through your day with this question, Lord, I've discovered that you want me to have life again this morning. I'm up. I don't know how. Tell you something, none of you have any idea how you got here this morning. You succumbed to sleep at a moment you did not know, and you woke up without meaning to, probably. You just woke up. God's gift to you, physical life. And the physical life that you have now is to be enjoyed with Jesus who is your life. And here is his word to you. He's the vine, you're the branches. If you abide 
in him and he abides in you, you will bear a great deal of fruit because if you stick with him, his life will manifest through you because apart from him, you can do nothing. In other words, his job is to give life and your job is to stay close to him. He is life. He can't help it. He won't change it. Life is who Jesus is. Life is what Jesus gives. If you're a Christian, you have the very life and the person of Christ within you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. To these same disciples that he's commissioning to make other disciples who almost without exception are on their way to a brutal death under persecution in just a few years, Jesus said to them, I am going to be with you every day until the end of the world. Until I end everything here and make everything new and make everything right, I will be with you. So what are we afraid of? Why not consider that all of this suffering, all of this upheaval, all of these losses are in the hands of a strong, beautiful, faithful, loving, wise Lord who designs them all to make you more like him and to bring other people to him? What if instead of all the suffering and all the loss, I'm not minimizing it, I'm not denying it, it's been brutal. I've told friends personally, I feel like I'm on a little island watching a storm rage around me, but I know for some of you, it has cost you things that you will not recover until you get to heaven. And I'm terribly sorry for that. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just asking you a bigger, more cosmic question from the perspective of the Lord who's in charge of everything. What if we saw everything, including this pandemic and all that it has forced us to deal with as opportunities to fully embrace the life of Christ, to seek kingdom values, to represent him well, and to make other disciples in his name? That would make all the difference in the world. What has kept me steady and solid, as steady and solid as I've been, because just like you, I've had my moments, is a reminder that I am the Lord's. This is his church. You're not my people, you're his people. If you're one of those who comes to church every week, but you have not yet given yourself to Christ, you're the reason he's waiting love you as much or more than anybody because we so want you to trust Christ and be saved. But he's promised not only to raise himself from the dead and take his life back as promised, he's promised to give me life and to give you life and to be our life and to be with us always all the way to the end of the age. What am I trying to tell you? The king who rules died so that you could have his life and so that you could proclaim it to others. That's what Crosspoint needs to be about. That's what we've tried to be about. That's what our focus needs to be going forward. What will our congregation, what will American life look like post-pandemic? Nobody has any idea. We're starting to get contours and shapes of it, but we don't really have any idea. Remember when we said it'll be a couple weeks? Ha-ha. Entire industries have flourished. Others have disappeared. Ways of living have changed probably forever. 
It's an open question whether we can have a hamburger and have lumber these days. <laughs> Who knows what else may happen? Does it matter? Of course it matters. We have to live with it. But listen, the king died. The king of the creator died for his subjects, actually died for his enemies to make them into family members. The king who was rejected and denied and cursed in death took his life back to turn his enemies into his friends, into his sons and daughters, and he is your life. You haven't merely signed a creed. You do not merely have a Christian confession that you sign that you can contrast with everything that everybody else trusts. No, you have more than a creed. You have Christ. You have a Savior. You have someone who promised to go with you every day until the end of the age, who told you that he is your life, who gave you a good purpose and told you that without him you can do nothing. But guess what? With Christ you can do all things. Everything he wants you to do, you can do because he rules and because he is your life. So let's get on it. Whatever you've been putting off because of the pandemic, stop. That excuse, at least in California, ends on June 15th. <laughs> All the people you've been putting off, yeah, we'll see you when this is over. It's time to see them. All the good projects, all the changes you meant to make, it's time to make them. The mission has never changed. Indoors or outdoors, the mission has always been the same. Indoors or outdoors, in life and in death, the message is always the same. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He turns sinners into sons and daughters of God. He gives them life so that they will enjoy his eternal life forever. So if you've been putting off Jesus, stop. With no condescension, with nothing but love, with the patience of Christ, let me tell you, let me beg you, humbly plead with you to stop putting off Jesus and be saved this morning. And if you're his disciple, I hope you've learned from the pandemic as I have how fragile life is, how quickly everything could change. And I'm inviting you to join me and to join others into making Christ who is our life the whole purpose for our life until he takes us home or returns. Let's pray. Are you saved? Is Christ your life? If not, can I invite you right now in the name of Jesus to be saved? To turn to him in prayer, the one who's actually alive and listening and say, Jesus, please forgive me. I'm sorry for my sin. I know I'm far from you. It's my fault. Please forgive me. You can use those very words. You can use your own. The words don't even matter. You moving your trust from yourself, you moving your trust from loving sin and loving your own way to loving and trusting Jesus to save you. That'll make the difference. If you do that online, please let us know by sending us a text message. If you're here in person, fill out a card, please, in your bulletin. Leave it with us before you go so that we can walk the next steps with you and encourage you and celebrate you and pray for you. And in a pandemic, in an outdoor church, nine in the morning with the brisk air and the wind blowing, maybe it's mostly Christians. Christ is your life. Apart from him, you can do nothing. With him, you can do anything he wants you to do. Get after it, Christian.
Who are you going to disciple? Who are you still concerned about? Who still breaks your heart? Take their name. Take their person to Christ in prayer right now. The Lord is patient with you. The Lord is patient with them. You be patient as well. Give them Christ so that he may give them his own life. Jesus, thank you. We love you. Help us live for you. Help these simple verses that you are our life, that you're the vine and we're just the branches. Reorient us to live life through you, with you, for you. And Jesus, remind us that you're in charge. You are. We need reminding. We often forget. We get confused and get fearful of human authorities. We establish ourselves as the maximum authority, all because we momentarily forget that you rule. Thank you for welcoming us under your rule. Thank you for placing us in your family. Give us the grace to live for you, I pray. And Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you folks. Love you. Listen, every week I have really great, substantial, I think life-changing conversations with some of you who catch something from the Word of God and want to know what to do about it next. I welcome those conversations. Send me a text. Send me an email. Catch me over there at the hello table. I'd love to talk to you about how we're going to walk this out together. God bless you. Love you. Remember, next Sunday, last Sunday out here, this afternoon, we eat like Vikings. Well, not Vikings. They were, they were pretty rough. We eat like Christians. God bless you. Bye-bye.